Cold War 1 versus Cold War 2. Published 2022, November 14th. This will be a mostly direct reading of the article. Introduction. It is widely believed in the West that the USSR used propaganda both internally and externally to keep its population under control and to serve as a beacon for the international communist movement. I believe both of these, though more in the former case. I have, however, no basis on which to make this claim. I am not a student of the USSR or of the international communist movement. I am also checked by Ray McGovern's claim that the vast majority of the CIA's data in monitoring the USSR, over 80%, was obtained from open sources, by which he means reading Pravda and other Russian newspapers and listening to or reading speeches made by its political or military leadership. This statement does not deny the above. He, as an intelligence analyst, was trained in how to separate unverifiable or wild claims from the rest. I will assume the above assessment that the USSR used propaganda in a widespread manner for deliberate effect and that this was less so in the West during Cold War I. An inversion on the scale and success of the use of propaganda. A recent article by World Geostrategic Insights is a transcript of an interview with Eric Denesse. Eric is a former French military intelligence officer. The interview focuses on propaganda and a more informed or rational assessment of the lead-up to and current situation of the conflict on the ground of Ukraine between Russia and the USA slash NATO. He summarizes the core of his comparison between the propaganda efforts by the Russian Federation and the USA slash NATO bloc in the following, quote, while it is undeniable that Moscow seeks to present the facts to its advantage, its actions have nothing in common with the real information war implemented by the Americans and the Ukrainians. For the first time in history, democracies lie and misinform more than authoritarian regimes, whether we like it or not. End quote. To reinforce his point, the banning of Russia today by the majority of Europe is a bit of a giveaway. Further reinforcement is that major Western news media are reporting from Kiev repeating statements made by its regime representatives. Thus, the news is completely one-sided. Additionally, they don't visit Donbass and report from on the ground on the other side of the conflict. It is a completely skewed representation. Gilbert Doctorow penned a recent article in which he expressed a frustration which comes from the effective propaganda being used by the major media organizations of the West. In this media space, we constantly see that persons expressing ideas which are contrary to acceptable narrative are labeled as Putin apologists or Kremlin agents or other brain-dead labels. Some commentators have been enjoying this label given to them, declaring, we've been in touch with the Kremlin and they still haven't paid us. Dr. Al visits an old social club of which he is a member. He describes attitudes there as, quote, especially sympathetic to Russian culture and open to hearing non-conformist views of Mr. Putin's Russia, end quote. The use of abuse and ad hominem attacks are anathema to discussions there. However, Dr. Al finds a resistance to reasoned, informed argument with his interlocutors. He summarizes his frustration with the title of the article, The Lamentable State of Intellectual Discourse About the Russia-Ukraine War. 
From this, we may conclude that Western propaganda is not only widespread, but also successful. Some light through the cracks. My recently published article moves from Dima's analysis to the wider geopolitical perspective of Xi Jinping's upcoming visit to Riyadh. The starting point for that analysis was that Dima could not see how it would be possible for Russia to have withdrawn 30,000 troops and hundreds of tanks, armoured personnel carriers, artillery pieces and hundreds of tons of ammunition and other essential equipment from Kherson city across the Dnieper and suffered no losses whatsoever. This was a perfect opportunity for Ukraine to turn this from an orderly withdrawal into a potential rout. There is, of course, only one explanation for this, and that is that an agreement was reached between Russia and USA to deny Ukraine the intelligence they would have needed to attack the withdrawing forces. We then learned that Sullivan was in Moscow and then in Kiev in the days leading up to this withdrawal, and that the discussions were about de-escalation. Indeed, it has recently been announced that nuclear arms talks will be resumed, which is excellent news. It is almost certain that this withdrawal plan had been drawn up or improved soon after General Sorovikin was given command of the entire special military operation. He expressed from the outset that, quote, difficult decisions may have to be made, end quote. We now understand at least one aspect of what he meant by this. A timeline. October the 8th, RT announces that Sorovikin has taken over the command. October the 13th, Earliest reports of civilians being evacuated from Kherson in settlements around the city. October the 18th, earliest reports of civilians being evacuated from Kherson city itself. November the 4th, Putin declares that civilians should leave Kherson city. November the 9th, the earliest reports emerge that Russia will be withdrawing from Kherson city and surrounding regions. November the 10th, CNN publishes Christine Amapour's interview with Zelensky and his wife. November 11th, Reuters reports that the Russian Ministry of Defense has declared that the withdrawal is complete. Inferences and reveals. There are a few propaganda reveals here. Firstly, it should not be forgotten that there is a high-level contact between Russian and USA military. This was established during Cold War I as a de-escalation mechanism, or more precisely, to prevent mistakes or accidents being misinterpreted as provocations. This contact mechanism lives on to this day. So, statements made by officials representing the USA government that no discussions are taking place means no diplomatic discussions. This is a very silly idea, but gets run up the flagpole by Western media to support the ongoing propaganda of unified support for Ukraine. This is completely backwards. Unified support for Ukraine would mean finding a ceasefire as soon as possible, and you can't do that without diplomacy. That there was an agreement to allow the withdrawal is obvious. It is additionally obvious that the withdrawal had been underway for some days before it was announced by Russia. It doesn't matter how much of a logistical genius one is, I cannot believe that one can withdraw all of those troops and equipment across a contested zone in two days. So, the operation had to have begun before it was publicly announced, and obviously planned weeks earlier. Next, if one believes that CNN's top international interviewer just happened to be in Kiev on the 10th, then, 
as the Alexes from the Duran would say, I have a bridge to sell you. I could count five cameras used in the first few minutes of the interview. You obviously need a sound engineer and a producer. You then want a few assistants. Many of these and their equipment may have been already in Kiev. Minimally, you need to transport Amapor and her producer there. To do that, you presumably fly into Poland. You wouldn't be able to use rail transport due to the unreliability of Ukraine's rail system because of the recent Russian attacks on the power grid. Thus, Amapur and company needed to be driven from Poland to Kiev. To organize and execute this and give time for preparation after arrival, it must have taken at least 36 hours. Plus, the video has to be edited and prepared for publication before its release on the 10th. Thus, minimally, CNN were instructed to get Amapur to Kiev before the earliest announcement of the withdrawal. She may have only been given the script later, but the logistics and travel had to have begun before the public knew about the withdrawal. This is further evidence of contacts and arrangements between Russia and the USA. The last crack of light or reveal is the second I've got a bridge to sell you coincidence. The public announcement of the withdrawal happens the day after the USA midterm voting. An improved timeline. If we put all of this together, we can understand the likely sequence of events. The end result is that in 33 days, Surovikin has withdrawn from Hesson the military and a large amount of the civilian population. During early to mid-October, military evacuation plans are drawn up or improved, and civilian evacuation from towns outside of Kherson city and from Kherson city itself are begun. Russia has already learned what happens to civilians in areas they controlled when they withdrew. The key examples are Bucha and the area west of Kharkiv. They focus on moving the civilians first, for which I give them credit. Indeed, it reinforces that they care about these people. Another snippet of care is that Russia removed from Kherson a city created by Catherine the Great, relics, and a piece of cultural history. They were mothballed and carefully removed. I have a sneaking suspicion that Russia will have little sympathy for citizens who chose to remain, and even less for the civilian infrastructure of the city they have emptied. Somewhere between mid and late October, Russia contacts the USA and informs them of intentions to withdraw and require that this will be allowed without being targeted. Only the military know how long this took, but agreement is reached and the date for the proclamation of the withdrawal is to be following the midterms. One can understand the USA national political agenda, with many almost senior USA military officers holding a conservative political outlook. Seeing as they were hoping for a red tide, giving Biden the ability to dance around declaring a Ukrainian victory would have limited that potential political success. The military tend to be frank amongst themselves, and I am confident that most of the USA military would have been happy to see Hassan return to Ukrainian control. Thus, keeping a lid on this deal would not have been too difficult. The other element at play was revealed by Chief of Staff Milley when he began to call for negotiations after the withdrawal. There is certainly a faction looking to create off-ramps or exit strategies. Meanwhile, 
The Russian military were busy enough, and more time was just fine and dandy. The civilian evacuations continue, with Putin declaring on November the 4th that civilians should leave. One can assume that Russia must have received confirmation of a safe withdrawal by this time. So this was a bit of a giveaway if one had the perception to see it. Equally, the USA media would be all in a fit about the midterms and paying less attention to Ukraine, which provides additional cover for the early covert part of the military evacuation. There is, of course, nothing covert from satellite surveillance. The day following the midterms in the USA, the Russian public announcement of withdrawal is made. Between these two dates, much of the heavy equipment and personnel would have been withdrawn, so that the last component of the operation could be achieved within around 24 hours. Interestingly, military commentators stated that it would take a week for the withdrawal. This is exactly the time it took, if you count, from November the 4th. What lessons can be drawn from all of the above? For one, there are discussions underway, which is always possible at the military level, but is now admitted at the political level, with some parts of the military calling for more. There are often back-channel discussions underway to reach agreements about which we learn very little until after the objectives of the agreement are reached. This is a lesson endlessly repeated in history. We can also see that the majority of news coming out of the Western media is propaganda. We also learn that if one takes a wide array of sources and possesses a little patience, one can finally understand much of that which was previously occluded. But what does the withdrawal mean? Not much, really. Both sides can now redeploy their forces. Ukraine needs not maintain such a presence in the south, and the same is true for Russia. Both sides will build effective defensive positions. Recent talk of Ukraine pushing from northern Zaporozhye to the coast is a possibility. However, one can expect that Russia will be preparing against this as it would be a devastating loss, breaking their logistics lines from Crimea. So the grind will continue, particularly in Donetsk. Some commentators are claiming that Russia is settling in for a long grind, which may be true. I'm a little more hopeful that increased discussions between Russia and the USA for nuclear talks, while the Ukrainians continue to be ground down, may provide for some hope. Again, patience is required. Thanks for listening. Until next time.